cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 28th, 2011. Oh man, can you believe it's almost October? The leaves are changing here in Indiana. Cooler weather is here. Although it's been raining a lot. Football is here, but that's kind of a non-event if you're living in Indianapolis. I've already talked about that. It's, it's going to be a constant lament. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we've got to do the comparative work. And uh, what we're going to spend our program uh, doing today is, um, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, we're going to be spending the entire program making the case for creeds. Um, If if you remember the the old... old movie i'm making myself sound old um but if you remember the movie top gun uh, uh T- tom cruise's character had this uh this wonderful statement he said i feel the need the need for speed well uh, today's edition of fighting for the faith is kind of like a top gun edition of fighting for the faith uh, you know, keep in mind we believe in true uh spiritual warfare in the sense that we are to take every thought captive make it obedient to christ to always be ready to give an answer a reason for the hope that lies within us Uh, things of of that nature to to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints that being the case uh, you know some warfare themes are 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 actually good uh you know uh, to constantly emphasize this because scripture makes it clear we're at war and the war is not against uh fellow human beings actually the war is against the devil and we're fighting for people and not against them, even though that means we have to come against false doctrine. Ultimately, the goal really is their repentance or for them to stop teaching what they're teaching and people to be deceived for. it. So uh, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I feel the need, the need for creeds. Yeah, this sure is tacky, isn't it? It's just uh, a gratuitous flashback to the 80s in my... Just roll with it. 
<laughs> All right, enough of that. Anyway, yeah, so we're going to fly right into the danger zone. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, something th- sounds like a great idea, and then you pull it off and you realize, oh, that was just tacky. <laughs> I'm having one of those moments. Anyway, let, let's let's kind of walk you through this, and, um, and you know, we'll, we'll try to throw in a little bit of humor along the way. But this is uh, going to mostly be a, a, a pretty serious teaching um, edition of Fighting for the Faith, although I've got a fantastic article from the uh, the latest edition of the onion that i think actually plays into today's edition of fighting for the faith but uh you know let's kind of talk about where we're going to go with this first um it, the other day uh, i think it's yesterday yes uh, yes yesterday uh james mcdonald on his blog you can find this at jamesmcdonald.com um the name of the blog post is association versus discernment and is james mcdonald changing that's the uh, the name of the uh, the blog post and i'm not going to i'm not going to read the whole thing but what i'm going to do is i'm going to challenge uh Challenge in a brotherly, in a spirit of brotherly challenge. Uh, how does how does the proverb say it in Proverbs twenty seven that uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend? See, that's the thing is, is that uh, you know we live in a day where if you challenge somebody's teaching, if you challenge their doctrine, say, hey, that's not really what the Bible teaches, or you know things like that, then what happens is, is that uh, well, you run the risk of hurting their feelings, and apparently, hurting fe- somebody's feelings is contrary to love. Well, I disagree with that. And uh, I would uh, I would point out the Apostle Paul really didn't care too much about uh, Peter's feelings when he confronted him in front of everybody regarding his behavior that was contrary to the gospel. So the spirit that I'm delivering this in uh, is is in that spirit. It's in it's in that spirit. James McDonald, uh, you know, we talked about this the other day on Monday that uh, the announcement has gone out that T.D. Jakes is going to be. Uh, one of the uh, people speaking at the uh, the next Elephant in the Room conference, which I think is a tremendous mistake. And uh, the reason why is because uh, when you take the time to investigate his uh, theology, uh, it's uh, it's patently clear that, um, well, T.D. Jakes is a Sabalian modalist. Uh, that's the, the correct heretical term for it. And, uh, and, and continues to use those terms. Uh, the terms that are uh, congruent with modalism, not Trinitarian theology. And so uh, on, on James McDonald's blog, uh, his point number two in this particular blog, blog post, the headline reads, I do not agree that T.D. Jakes is a modalist. Okay? And I, I'd like to read what he says. He says, I affirm the doctrine of the Trinity as I find it in Scripture. I believe it is clearly presented, but not detailed or nuanced. I believe God is very happy with his word as given to us and does not wish to update or clarify anything that he has purposely left opaque. Some things are stark and immensely clear, such as the deity of Christ. Others are taught but shrouded in mystery, such as the Trinity. I do not trace my beliefs to creedal statements that seek clarity on things the Bible clouds with mystery. I do not require T.D. Jakes or anyone else to define the details of Trinitarianism the way that I might. His website states clearly he believes that God has existed eternally in three manifestations, which, by the way, is classic Sabalian uh, 
language and there's meanings behind that. But McDonald continues, I'm looking forward to hearing him explain what he means by that. I'm also excited to hear him state his views on money, which may be closer to scripture than the monasticism currently touring reformed world. I don't even know what that sentence means. Anyways, um, so so there you go. That There's a lot packed into here. And I think James McDonald on his blog post is representing a common view. And I think a common view that is very mistaken and wrongheaded uh, that manifests itself in the body of Christ. He's put himself into a particular camp. And uh, the camp is, uh, I affirm the Bible and not creeds and things like, uh, with kind of the assumption that creeds are a bad thing. Well, I would like to make the case that non-creedal Christianity is actually a bad thing. It's the other way around. The real danger is the Wild West that we have right now in American Christianity, and that creeds are not a bad thing. They're actually a very, very good thing. And uh, and so, like I said at the beginning of this uh, this edition of Fighting for the Faith, I feel the need the need for creeds. And so, what I would like to do to kind of make the case for creeds here, and basically saying, listen, um, uh, the y- 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 that bristling against creeds and doctrinal uh, clarity and do- this is this is uh, that's not that's not smart. That's actually uh, that's how we got to where we is. Um, uh, somebody sent me an email uh, today, and uh, basically, you know, I'm, this this has everything to do with what I'm talking about. Uh, somebody sent me an email today, and you know, kind of taking a crack at you know deciphering the Rick Warren code. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, Rick Warren, as we've portrayed here at Fighting for the Faith, has a proclivity for basically inviting <sighs> inviting bad preachers uh, who teach bad things to his conferences and to his. Uh, and to preach at his church, uh, lately uh, one being uh, Robert Morris, uh, a man who clearly, clearly believes the word faith uh, heresy, and uh, he teaches false doctrine. But uh, and the point, the person pointed out the fact. Well, but but from time to time, Rick Warren has good teachers come and teach at his at uh, Saddleback Church, and I, I'll absolutely grant the premise. And so their point was is that. You know, it's really hard to kind of figure out where you know what this all means because what it might more than likely mean is just that Rick Warren is looking for ways of promoting Rick Warren and uh, and doctrinal theological discernment and precision is just not even on his radar as something that's even important. Now, it uh, that I think that's a a, a pretty decent uh, a pretty decent interpretation of what's going on at uh, Saddleback Church. And what may be going on inside the mind of uh, Rick Warren, um, but uh, let me come back to James McDonald. He says, "I affirm the doctrine of the Trinity as I as I find it in Scripture, as I find." Now this sounds pious, but uh, I'm going to read for you several different things that uh, that kind of challenge this. And what I first need to do is I want to make an apologetic for creeds themselves. And what I mean by that is is that why were the creeds created. And and what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll for the sake of discussion we're going to talk about the three ecumenical creeds. Now as a Lutheran I hold to the Lutheran confessions and we're going to talk about you know what I mean by my subscription to the Lutheran confessions and why I do that. Now one of the things that constantly happens when you run into creeds is how are we as Christians to properly and biblically understand the function of something like a creed? Uh because 
our authority is God's word, not the creed. And yet the creeds are used authoritatively to identify and remove heretics. At least that's the way they've been used in the past. And so, you know, the question is, how do creeds, where do they get their authority and how are we to view it? And this is something that confessional Lutherans have actually spent quite a bit of time um, you know, talking about. And C.F. Uh, w. Walther, back in like 1856, um, actually he wrote an article that kind of went, uh, you know, he wrote it and then it really wasn't talked about much until uh, the, the mid part of the uh, the 20th century. And it, it, it brought, I think, some very good clarity as to how we're to view the creeds and what we're supposed to do. And uh, so l- let me just explain it in these categories. Okay, number one, category number one, the Bible is truly the the authority on doctrine. The Bible absolutely clear. And the the Latin phrase that we use for that is it is the um, uh, norma normans. That means it's the norming norm. Okay. So if you run afoul of what Scripture teaches, you're teaching heresy. Plain and simple. Okay. Now, there's another category, and that is a creed. A creed is what we call a norma normata, okay? That's the Latin phrase for it. And what it means is is that it is a normed norm. That means it is normed against the scriptures, okay? So what? Uh, just a simple way to think of creeds, and at this point I'm just talking about the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, Okay? These are normed norms, and what we mean by that, or what is meant by that, is is that these creeds confess the scriptures. These creeds are tight, compact, really, really uh, dense, and I mean that in the in, in like a in in like the best possible light. It, it means these. Uh, if you were to think of uh, of a creed it, using a dessert metaphor. Okay, um, you can have something that's light and fluffy, or you can have something that's really thick and really dense, and you know each each bite has like you know a thousand calories. Okay, you have to think of a of a creed as something that is tightly packed and super dense theologically, and uh, and as a result of it, you there's people these are these are tools that are useful not only for uh, to you know, identifying heresy, but that the, they're but unpacking them uh, biblically, you know, it, it presents a meal in and of itself, and you can never really exhaust the depth of these things. So the idea then is is that creeds are authoritative because they correctly confess or they confess the scriptures and what the scriptures teach, and so you have to think of them as normed norms and they've been normed against the scriptures. Now I'm going to talk about two different ways that you subscribe to creeds, okay? Um I'm going to begin with um how you know at least within the Missouri Synod within confessional Lutheranism how uh the, what do, confessional subscription should be. And for pastors, for pastors in a confessional Lutheran church, their subscription to the confessions needs to be unequivocal and unqualified. And the uh, uh, the idea there is is that they subscribe they basically subscribe to the confessions, basically unqualified. Yes, why? Because these confessions confess the scriptures. They confess what the scriptures teach. 
So the idea is is that in the pulpit, the the, the man holding the pastoral office um, should is it should not be allowed to be a pastor within a confessional church unless he gives unqualified subscription to uh, the confessions and that his ministry uh, you know it includes as a vital part of it uh, teaching the doctrines of Scripture. As understood, you know, as understood by the normed norm, these would be the the confessions. Same thing with the creeds, and you know, because the, the three ecumenical creeds actually make up the uh, uh, the uh, the first portion of the confessions of the Lutheran Church. So the idea here is is that these are tightly compressed theological systematic theologies that correctly confess what the scriptures teach, and they're then useful as summaries. To compare what people what somebody is saying to what the what the Bible teaches. So when somebody says something that runs afoul of these creeds or confessions, they're not teaching what they're teaching is not biblically faithful. Instead, it is it is biblically heretical or an error or is heterodox. It should not be taught. It could be identified and removed from the body as a as a as a pathogen, you know, if you, if you would, you know, using kind of an illness type of form. So that's the idea. So when a pastor comes, to, you know, to the you know who who is called and ordained and uh, and is a pastor, his subscription to these confessions is unqualified. It is, be, you know, he confesses that this is what Scripture teaches. As a result of it, this is what fences him in. This is what defines the doctrines that he is to teach and, and boldly confess. This defines how you understand the gospel, salvation, judgment, all of that stuff. And and basically saying that I believe that these, you know, unqualified, this is what the scriptures teach. Now, on the layman level, the reality is is that um laymen come to things without having um without having the theological study and depth of a pastor at least that's the normal case so lay people i mean because they have vocations out in the world uh including mom dad student uh you know you know homemaker um you know working in a cubicle you know all everybody comes to church uh as their primary primary vocation being something other than uh word and sacrament ministry uh they come they come basically to be fed and to be taught and to understand and and to feast on sacred things. That's kind of the idea here. And so the reality is, is that people in the congregation, uh, in, in many senses, come with false belief, with false doctrine, with error, with uh, things that they need to repent of, both in thought, word, deed, you know, you get what I'm saying. And so many times the uh, the uh, the layperson will be sitting in the congregation basically with their arms folded and say, yeah, I, I, I'm not so sure what the scriptures teach. You better show me, Pastor. I know you believe that that book or that creed there correctly uh, correctly teaches the Bible, but uh, I'm only going to believe those creeds insofar as they correctly teach the Bible. So your job is to, you know, show me that that's what the scriptures teach. You, you get what I'm saying? So, from the from the layperson's point of view, many times the way they approach the creeds is well, they're only true insofar as they correctly teach the Bible. And um, it's the job of the pastor to show them from scriptures that yeah these things are right and that this is the, the, these not because they're trying to defend the creeds but because the creeds correctly teach what the scriptures teach. Do you get what I'm saying here? So that's kind of the idea behind it. Now, in America, creeds have fallen from favor. They're considered to be an impediment to the spirit. You know, think you know oh we don't need creeds. All we need is the Bible. You know, the, <laughs> 
it's the, it's actually that attitude that has led us to the Wild West train wreck that we're experiencing right now, okay? Because let me let me make the case for you, okay? Could you tell me with any precision what Rick Warren really believes? Could you sit down and systematically backwards engineer a tightly compressed Rick Warren creed? And you're going, well, I, yeah, well maybe. The answer, the, the answer to the question is you could probably do it, but it would take many, many, many hours, a lot of listening. And then the, you got the added problem uh, is that it doesn't seem to be fixed. It seems to wander around a bit. Um, so, um, so let me ask you another question. Could you tell me with any precision what uh, Perry Noble believes? Uh, could you tell me with any degree of precision what Robert Morris truly believes? You might have a better, uh, you might have a better, easier task there. Can you tell me with any precision what Mark Driscoll believes? Um, yeah. See, he, how about Rob Bell, Brian McLaren? I think McLaren we have a little bit more now than we did a couple of years ago. But the point is this: is that, um, in the Wild West that we live in. Uh, you're constantly having to be on guard because uh, you just don't know what somebody believes. And just and having them say, well, I believe the Bible really doesn't help much because Arius said he believed the Bible. Uh, Pelagius said he believed the Bible. And uh, you, you get what I'm saying? So, you know, because all of the major heretics in history say they believe the Bible. Mormons say they believe the Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe the Bible. Um, so, yeah, uh, creeds really help us understand how somebody understands the Bible and what doctrines they think are vital and important and what the center of their theology is. Without them, uh, well, we're kind of left just guessing. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, that's, and so that's actually a problem. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. And you got to understand, the scriptures tell us that the faith was once for all delivered to the saints, which means that the body of doctrine that that has been given to the church by revelation of the Holy Spirit in his word is there. But how are we to understand it? And the answer to the question is, is, well, the church throughout its history has relied heavily and successfully on creeds that were forged in theological battles as a means of protecting them from false doctrine, identifying heresies, and proclaiming and teaching the truth. And so, unfortunately, James McDonald's approach here is, like, really backwards. It's really, truly backwards. You know, uh, here, uh, you know, the, the people who pay attention closely and scrutinize the uh, the, the preaching and teaching of T.D. Jakes, and uh, not the least of which are people who've left T.D. Jakes's, uh, you know, church, uh, they, they all say the man teaches modalism, okay? And so the evidence has been put forward that, well, hey, T.D. Jakes actually is a classic modalist. He's a Sabalian. That's why he uses Sabalian words like, he believes that God exists in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that's what he believes. So James McDonald is actually kind of approaching this whole thing 
backwards. And, you know, and that's because that's where we're at. And he represents that anti-credal American thing, which is actually it works against doctrine, sound doctrine and true Christian unity. It actually works against it rather than creating it. So um, what I'm going to do by way of, you know, to kind of demonstrate this, I'm going to read a few reactions. uh, Well, actually a few different articles that talk about this subject uh, from people who, well, they're far smarter than I am. So uh, (laughs) you're going to have to wait till the, uh, the, uh, when we get back from the break for that, but, uh, and then what we're going to do. So I'm going to read some things that kind of make the case that, you know, uh, something from Todd Wilkin, uh, you know, th- there's a couple other people, uh, too, that I'm going to be, uh, reading stuff from that kind of, that help kind of put this all together, including Michael Horton and others. But, uh, the idea here is, is that precise biblical, precise doctrinal definitions and tight creedal summaries are not actually, uh, enemies of unity they they created and they're not enemies of sound doctrine they created they're not enemies of the truth they actually help protect it and so uh you know that's i think where we need to go but what we're going to do is we're going to take our first break and uh when we come back uh when we come back we're going to dive into the next segment which will run long just so you know i'm going to run i'm going to uh, segment number 2 is going to run well into hour number 2 and then what we're going to do is we're going to uh, listen to uh, when we get to our sermon review we're going to, it's not a traditional sermon it's kind of a video podcast uh, thing that we're going to be reviewing and uh, by a guy by the name of Dr. Steve McVeigh and um and this is this is like I, the reason I agreed to review this sermon. Somebody s- sent it to me and said, you got to review this guy. One of the reasons I agreed to review it on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, because I searched high, I searched low. I looked all over this guy's website and could not find a creed, a, a, a summary of, you know, of, of their beliefs. I, I, so I literally, what we're going to be listening to, I'd never heard of this guy before, and so I have no idea what he teaches, and I have no idea what he believes, and so we're going to wander through this uh, this uh, lecture by uh, Dr. Steve McVeigh, and uh, and kind of have to just do the painstaking work of going, okay, what does this guy believe, and see if we can get a radar fix on the gospel that he preaches, and see if it's actually biblical. Um but uh you know but this is a guy who claims that uh you know the church is, the church teaches all kinds of different errors and uh, at the same time after listening to him i'm convinced he teaches some errors of his own but i have no idea what he really believes teaches and confesses so i just have to go you know i have to do the hard work of slogging through a sermon so that that i'm doing that is kind of, you know just to kind of help, you know kind of put a fine point on the point that we're making on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. All right, so if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> How can I help you? Hi, I got this Builder God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back.
warning. It's the it's the belief that creeds are bad that's created the wild west that we live in right now. We might want to con- reconsider this approach. It's not working. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to decide, you know, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do that by clicking on the Donate button and filling everything out there. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. 038 and thank you thank you thank you for your support we truly can't do what we do without your help okay now let's uh we're, move along here and from the onion <laughs> i think that's the first time i've ever said that here on this program i'm gonna <laughs> be doing a, a, a listen the onion is not a reputable news source but uh in this particular case they, they, they this this particular story is the one that makes sense and uh uh, the uh, the Onion headline reads: Historians politely remind nation to check what's happened in the past before any making any big decisions. <laughs> this is this actually kind of makes my point. Um, if you've never read The Onion, uh, you have to read it uh, with care because that that is a um, although it's funny at times it can be just flat out crass. Anyway. Um, so, uh, the, so the Onion writes, uh, uh, Dateline Washington, uh, with the United States facing a daunting array of problems at home and abroad, leading historians courteously, uh, courteously reminded the nation Thursday that when making tough choices, it never hurts to stop a moment, take a look at similar situations from the past, and then think about whether the decisions people made back then were good or bad. Uh, according to historians, by looking at things that have already happened, Americans can learn a lot about which actions made things better versus which actions made things worse and can then plan their own actions accordingly. Quote, in the coming weeks and months, people will have to make some really important decisions about some really important issues. Columbia University historian Douglas R. Collins said during a press conference, speaking very slowly and clearly so the nation could follow his words. Quote, and one thing we can do before making a choice that has permanent consequences for our entire civilization is check really quick first to see if human beings have ever done anything like it previously and see if it turned out to be a good idea or not. (laughs) Okay, now that's tongue-in-cheek. That's tongue-in-cheek, but it actually makes the point that I'm making here. You know... What do they say? If if you if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to make the same mistakes. Well, listen. What we're experiencing in Christianity in the United States actually has a um, a, a historical predecessor, a, a historical precedent, and you would have to look back to the early Christians before there were good tight creedal statements, good tight creedal statements forged in theological and doctrinal battle. Uh, you know, that's you know, when there was a similar wild west approach, if you would, at least there was a wild west experience of sorts 
Not quite on this level, though. Not quite on this level. The reason I say that is because when you read the writings of the early church fathers, one thing becomes very clear. There's a common theme that runs in all of the early church fathers, especially the early Christian apologists, and that is is that they defended the they defended Christianity using the outline of what is called the rule of faith, and the rule of faith reads and sounds like a uh, uh, basically a beta version of the Nicene Creed. And so uh, the the Christian church never quite had the same problems that we're having today. But it's important that with all of the heresy running around, all of the strange and weird winds of doctrine blowing from this direction and then that direction and Americans chasing after the latest and greatest theological, uh, spiritual fad. I mean, think about the prayer of Jabez. Do you know anybody that still takes that thing seriously? But uh, again, that that was just bad theology. But see, here's the deal. You got all of these people basically being blown hither and yon by all of the latest and greatest winds of false teaching running through the church. And um, what we need is an anchor. What we need is a rudder. Uh, you know, we th- these are common, by the way, using kind of the nautical uh, th- thing here. Have, have you ever heard of a ship that's at sea without a rudder? Hmm? Have you ever heard of a ship leaving without an anchor? You see, creeds provide rudders and anchors for the church so that they're not blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. And keep in mind, it's not me, but Jesus. It was not me, but Jesus who warned the church that there would be false Christs, false prophets, and wolves in sheep's clothing. So we have an enemy. His name is Satan. And Satan operates best in obscurity. Satan's favorite favorite set of circumstances to work from is in a church that has no clear definitions or a concept of what the Bible teaches or doesn't teach. And no no good sound alarm system for identifying heretics. You know, because if you don't have any doctrinal precision, yeah, anything goes. And uh, so, yeah, so this uh, this new story from The Onion, historians politely remind nation to check what's happened in the past before making any big decisions. I, I think we could rewrite that. Uh, theologians uh, politely remind the church to check what's happened in the past before making any doctrinal decisions. I think that would be the right way of looking at it. Now, I would like to bring some men to bear on this, like I said, that are a little bit smarter than I. Now, uh, uh, and so to start off, uh, I will be uh, reading a, uh, a an article entitled Norma Normata, notice the Latin there, the normed norm by R.C. Sproul. This is found on the Ligonier Ministries website, and I think he makes a good point. And so we'll, we're going to start off, uh, you know, kind of our, the, the apologetic now for good, precise theological creeds and confessions that have that have rigorous precision in them regarding what the what this what the core doctrines of the of the Bible teach. Okay, R.C. Sproul writes. He says the Latin word "credo" means simply "I believe." It represents the first word of the Apostles' Creed throughout church history. It has been necessary for the church to adopt and embrace creedal statements that clarify the Christian faith and to distinguish true content from error and false representations of the faith. Such creeds are distinguished from Scripture in that Scripture is norma normans, the rule that rules, 
while the creeds are norma normata, or a rule that is ruled. Historically, Christian creeds have included everything from brief affirmations to comprehensive statements. The earliest Christian creed is found in the New Testament, which declares Jesus is Lord. The New Testament makes a somewhat cryptic statement about this affirmation, namely that no one can make this statement except for by the Holy Spirit. What are we to understand by this? On the one hand, the New Testament tells us that people can honor God with their lips while their hearts are far from him. That is to say, people can recite creeds and make definite, uh, definitive affirmations of faith without truly believing those affirmations. So then, why would the New Testament say that no one can make this confession save by the Holy Spirit? Perhaps it was because of the cost associated with making that creedal statement in the context of ancient Rome. The loyalty oath required by Roman citizens to demonstrate their allegiance to the empire in general and to the emperor in particular was to say publicly, Caesar Curios, that is, Caesar is Lord. In the first century church, Christians bent over backward to be obedient to civil magistrates, including the oppressive measures of Caesar, and yet when it came to making the public affirmation that Caesar is Lord, Christians could not do so in good conscience. As a substitute for the phrase, Caesar is Lord, the early Christians made an affirmation by saying, Jesus is Lord. To do that was to provoke the wrath of the Roman government, and in many cases it cost the Christian his life. Therefore, people tended not to make that public affirmation unless they were moved by the Holy Spirit to do so. The simple creed, Jesus is Lord, or, more, or the more full statements, such as the Apostles' Creed, give an outline of basic, essential teachings. The creeds summarize New Testament content. The creeds also use that summary content to exclude the heretics of the 4th century. In the affirmation of the Nicene Creed, the Church affirmed categorically its belief in the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. These affirmations were seen as essential truths of the Christian faith. They were essentially because without inclusion of these truths, any claim to Christianity would be considered a false claim. At the time of the Reformation, there was a proliferation of creeds as the Protestant community found it necessary in the light of the heat of controversy of that time to give definitive statements as to what they believed and how their faith differed from the Roman Catholic Church's theology. Rome itself added her creedal statements at the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century as a response to the Protestant movement. But each Protestant group, such as Lutherans, the Swiss Reform, the Scottish Reform, found it necessary to clarify the truths that they were affirming. This was made necessary not only because of disagreements with, within Reformed parties, but also to clarify the Protestant position against frequent misrepresentations set forth by the Roman Catholic antagonists. The 17th century confessional statement known as the Westminster Confession is one of the most precise and comprehensive creedal statements growing out of the Reformation. It is a model of precision and biblical orthodoxy. However, because of its length and comprehensive dimension, it is difficult to find two advocates of the Westminster Confession who agree on every single precise point. Because of that, churches that use the Westminster Confession or other such confessions usually limit requirements of adherence by acknowledgement of the system of doctrine contained within. These later Protestant creeds not only intended to affirm what they had regarded as essential uh, to Christianity, but specifically to clarify the details of the particular religious communion that would use such comprehension, uh, comprehensive confessions of faith. 
In our day, day, there has been a strong antipathy emerging against confessions of any stripe or any degree. On the one hand, the relativism that has become uh, pervasive in modern culture eschews any confession of absolute truth. Not only that, we have also seen a strong negative reaction against the rational and propositional nature of truth. Creedal statements are an attempt to show a coherent, unified understanding of the whole scope of Scripture. In that sense, they are brief statements of what we historically have called systematic theology. The idea of systematic theology assumes that everything that God says is coherent and not contradictory. So, though these creeds are not created out of pure rational speculation, nevertheless, they are written in such a way as to be intelligible and understood by the mind. Without such confessions, theological anarchy reigns in the church and in the world. And I would even just add to this at this point saying that's where we're at right now in the united states of america the church uh, in american evangelicalism is marked by the reign of theological anarchy at the moment and that's not a good thing Sproul continues twisting the truth fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them that's acts chapter 7 29 through 30 Uh, Visible disunity in the church is the worst it has ever been. We must take care not to think that God's people were once fully and visibly united on all matters of Christian living. Christians may have the Holy Spirit, but they are not free from sin in this life, and, and living in community with other believers always leads to disagreements. It has never been easy for any generation to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Disagreement in the church, uh, disagreements in the church have occurred over a wide range of issues, some more serious, some less serious, in regard to the essentials of the Christian faith. But whatever is at issue, disagreement in the church, uh, disagreements in the church occur only because of one, if not both, of the respective parties are in error. It is possible for you and I both to be wrong when we differ, but we cannot both uh, be totally correct. Of course, not every error in the body of Christ is a just cause for division, and differences that do not undermine the Orthodox Christian faith are to be tolerated. This is Paul's point in Romans 14. The church can tolerate the views of weaker believers as long as they do not try to bind the conscience of the strong. On the other hand, errors that compromise the tenets that distinguish Christianity from all other religions are absolutely intolerable. Denials of the Trinity, the virgin birth, and similar matters cannot be allowed to remain within the church because without these truths there is no Christian faith. Throughout history, the church has summarized the biblical teaching on such matters in its creeds and confessions, using them as a rule by which it can preserve the purity of its testimony to the one true God. Creeds and confessions are useful only if the church holds its ministers accountable to these documents. Regrettably, The church has not always enforced the plain teachings of Scripture, and in many denominations today, Orthodox Christian pastors and teachers are few and far between. Until the Lord returns, however, believers, especially those in leadership positions, are called to maintain the purity of the faith. And if we do not exercise appropriate and loving vigilance, wolves will sneak in and work to deceive the flock of God. How familiar are you with the creeds and confessions that your particular church or denomination follows? While these statements of faith are always subject to the final authority of Scripture, they were written to help believers understand what the Bible actually teaches. So it is a good thing for us to be familiar with them. Take some time this week to read part or all of the confession of to which your church adheres. 
And if you would like to know what the uh, Lutheran Church believes, you can find our confessions at bookofconcord.org. Just want to let you know that. That's not Sproul speaking. That's me. Okay, now moving along, um, there um, there was a great article, uh, a great blog post written by Carl Truman, uh, who I think at the Reformation 21 blog, uh, uh, Carl Truman, uh, a, a gentleman whom I have a lot of respect for uh, in the uh, work that he's done. We've played several of his lectures during our Friday Light edition, not Friday Light, but Light edition of Fighting for the Faith. And Carl Truman, uh, he saw yesterday uh, Dr. James, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Pastor James McDonald's a blog post regarding T.D. Jakes, and he responded to it. And I would, I'd like to read his response here and uh, as one of the things I would like to contribute to the I Feel the Need, the Need for Creeds edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, here's what Carl Truman says. He says, There's an interesting statement about the Trinity by Gospel Coalition Council member and regular contributor James McDonald with reference to his invitation to T.D. Jakes to speak at a conference. I quote the relevant section, quote, I affirm the doctrine of the Trinity as I find it in Scripture. I believe it is clearly presented, but not detailed or nuanced. I believe God is very happy with his word as given to us and does not wish us to update or clarify anything he has purposely left opaque. Some things are stark and immensely clear, such as the deity of Christ. Others are taught but shrouded in mystery, such as the Trinity. I do not trace my beliefs to creedal statements that seek clarity on things the Bible clouds with mystery. I do not require T.D. Jakes or anyone else to define the details of Trinitarianism the way that I might. Hmm. His, Jakes's website, states clearly that he believes God has existed eternally in three manifestations. Truman then responds, the statement is an interest is interesting for a number of the claims that it makes. Number one, that the Trinity is apparently clearly presented in Scripture, but later creedal statements involve detail and precision, which belie Scripture's deliberate lack of nuance and opaqueness for this uh, for this issue. Two, further creedal Trinitarianism seeks clarity on issues which the Bible clouds with mystery. And three, the deity of Jesus is clearly taught in Scripture. Well, point three is good. The problem, of course, is that a cursory glance at church history would indicate that it was wrestling with the implications of point three, which drove the whole creedal Trinitarian debate in the first four centuries. The deity of Christ may have been clear, but the implications of the statement for Jewish monotheism were not so. The question could not be avoided, and over time, various options were put forward. Ultimately, only Nicene Orthodoxy was found satisfactory as a means of connecting the deity of Christ to the unity of God in a matter which did clear justice to the biblical text and also provide a Christ who could save. For the record, I do not know how Jakes uses terminology uh, uses the terminology of manifestation. In fact, uh, other than his diet book out of disbelief that he had written one, doubting Thomas that I am, I have never opened any book written by T.D. Jake. Still, the language of manifestation is vulnerable to being seen as modalist, and a modalist, cannot, a modalist God cannot save. The best one could say is that he uses very dangerous terminology at this point. Further, to place Nicene orthodoxy in the category of over-scrupulous doctrinal precisionism is in effect to declare the entire church, except for strands of American evangelicalism, apparently, from 381 to the present day to be wrong-headed. True, Catholic Christianity has always regarded Nicene Orthodoxy as vital, and evangelicalism which argues for the basic irrelevance of such is simply not part of that Catholic tradition. 
rather than being generously connected to other believers, it effectively isolates itself from the mainstream Christian tradition. Maybe there are consciences here bound to Scripture. I would certainly never demand that a man subscribe to something which he does not see in Scripture. But for myself, I need more than a few brief blog comments to understand why I should abandon Nicaea as crucial to salvation, revelation, and my doctrine of who God is and what he has done. I want to know how and why Athanasius and Cappado- uh, the Cappadocians, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and Owen, to name just eight representatives of Trinitarianism, considered this to be more than a matter of overscrupulousness. A humble listening to the past is important for the church in any circumstance. In the context of the creeds, such listening is absolutely non-negotiable. The detail in in the Trinitarian debate was vital. Of course, many Christian believers have a shaky grasp of Trinitarianism. It's a difficult theological area, and it is therefore important that those who hold uh, hold a teaching office do grasp this area so that they can bring their members on to maturity in this matter. Thus, for an evangelical leader to argue that creedal developments on Trinitarianism are of little importance is a fascinating glimpse into the doctrinal makeup of what constitutes contemporary evangelical leadership in the United States as it connects to Catholic Christianity and indeed any tradition which regards the insights of the Nice of Nicene Christianity as of importance in the overall transmission and articulation of the identity of Jesus Christ and thus his gospel. Carl Truman is spot on there. Spot spot on. Okay, next one that I would like to uh, bring to bear is uh, is an article written in the Against Heresies blog. Against Heresies, you can find it at against-heresies.blogspot.com. And um and the name of the blog post is Don't Fence Me In. Don't Fence Me In. Almost 20 years ago, I appeared in our school production of Calamity Jane. One of the songs from that musical serves as an anthem for those who have an aversion, almost an allergic reaction to confessional statements. That aversion is to regard confessional statements as inherently restrictive. As the song goes, let me ride in the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Of course, it shouldn't escape our notice that the rejection of confessionalism or a particular confession involves us making a confessional statement of a different kind. It is simply the exchanging of one kind of confession for another. To decry statements of faith as restrictive is at the same time to advocate another statement of faith, complete with a theology and an epistemology. To recognize, value, and insist on confessional statements should not be viewed as treating them as necessarily exhaustive. It does, however, imply that certain truths can be articulated, described, agreed upon, distinguished from other theological ideas, defended, and communicated in an intelligible form. It is a great shame to hear even well-respected church leaders shying away from statements of faith in their church network out of a desire to, uh, quote, put put people into a kind of a prison. That comment in context was not a flat-out denial of the value of creeds and confessions. It is, however, a curiously chosen and deeply inappropriate metaphor to describe confessionalism. Imagine a children's playground next to a minefield. Would you want a strong, tall fence with no gaps in it separating the two? Would you feel bad if your children complained that the park was a prison because of that big fence 
Even though I can't imagine anyone being dumb enough to put a playground next to a minefield, you would not want for one second to tear down that fence and let children explore the neighboring wide-open spaces unrestricted. That, of course, is only to think of creeds and confessional statements and their function as boundaries to protect the church from theological dangers. It doesn't begin to get at the way that confessions promote the truth of biblical teaching for the health, blessing, building up, and comfort of the church and the glorifying of the triune God of grace. Dr. Michael Horton, as he so often does, provides some helpful comments regarding anti-confessionalism. Says Dr. Horton, Ever since the beginning of the last century, the democratizing influence has bred suspicion and outright hostility towards creeds, confessions, and catechisms. Don't fence me in is the egalitarian spirit of romantic individualism that so characterizes our age and our churches. Occasionally, I will hear the objection to creeds, confessions, and catechisms with the assertions, I just go directly to the Bible. The assumption here is that those who drafted these documents that have stood the test of time, that they did not go directly to the Bible. But our forebearers did go directly to the Bible when they drafted their confessions of faith and catechisms. In fact, the Puritans carefully included text for every statement in the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism. The minute one begins to explain what the Bible is saying in a particular place, he or she is doing precisely what these gifted pastors and teachers did, interpreting the Word of God. The only difference is that our own interpretations are limited by our own time, place, and circumstances, whereas these long-standing interpretations make available to us today the wisdom of centuries of biblical interpretation. And that, by the way, is from a um, chapter written in the book called The Coming Evangelical Crisis, uh, it, that was edited by John Armstrong, and the name of chap, uh, Dr. Horton's chapter was Recovering the Plumb Line. Recovering the Plumb Line. Okay, one more, one more article, and this one's a long one, uh, was written by uh, Pastor Todd Wilkin of Issues Etc. He wrote this several years back, and the name of the article is entitled Bible-Believing Liberals. I actually interviewed uh, uh, Pastor Wilkin regarding this. And uh, this, he makes a fantastic point regarding this. And so let, let's read what uh, Pastor Wilkin wrote years ago entitled Bible-Believing Liberals. It begins with two quotes. When a thing grows weak and out of date, it's obviously soon going to disappear. That's also true of churches. If a church cannot change, it will eventually die. That's quote number one. Quote number two. Clearly, change in both liturgy and structure is inevitable, and this change will probably be radical if not total. The forms of the church the churches assumed in the past must inevitably die. Okay. So he begins with two quotes. Wilkin writes, he says, One of these statements comes from a famous Christian liberal. The other comes from a famous Christian conservative. Without peeking at the footnotes, which statement belongs to the conservative and which one belongs to the liberal? You can't tell, can you? Well, how can this be? One is against abortion, human cloning, embryonic stem cell research, and gay marriage, and against removing the words under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, and in God we trust from the currency, while the other is in favor of all of those things. One calls himself Bible-believing, the other thinks the Bible is a myth. Yet both say that the church must change or die. Full-blown liberal Christians are very easy to spot. They will tell you up front that they don't believe what the Bible says. 
But what about liberals who think that they are conservative? What about the liberals who claim to be Bible-believing Christians? Many Christians today think of themselves as conservative. They are pro-life, pro-family. They listen to Rush Limbaugh, to Sean Hannity. They watch Fox News. They vote traditional values. But can you be politically, socially, and morally conservative without being theologically conservative? Oh, yes, you can. Meet the Bible-believing liberals. While they believe that the culture needs to return to historic traditions, they think the church needs to abandon hers. While maintaining that the flag should be proudly displayed, they fear that a cross in church might offend seekers. While they believe that men and women have defined roles in marriage and family, they don't see why a woman can't replace a man in the pulpit. While outraged that our schools cater to the lowest common denominator, they think our churches need to be geared toward the unchurched. They believe that the that public policy should be based on objective facts, but preaching should be based on felt needs. They want under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, but omit the Apostles' Creed from Sunday services. They want the Ten Commandments in the public square, but are concerned when those commandments are placed within with principles for living in the pulpit. To the Bible-believing liberal, the ceremonies of a presidential inauguration are meaningful and inspiring, but the Sunday morning liturgy is boring. For the Bible-believing liberal, the differences between political parties are serious, but the differences between Christian denominations, well, they're petty. While they insist on strict literal interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, they play fast and loose with the Bible and its theology, even while maintaining its inerrancy and inspiration. These are the Bible-believing liberals. Now, I know uh, what you're thinking. Bible-believing liberal? It's, a, it's an oxymoron, right? You can't be truly Bible-believing and be a liberal at the same time. Well, that is the point. You see, many Christians think of themselves as conservative Christians, but they have confused cultural conservatism with theological conservatism. Theologically, these Bible-believing Christians have a lot in common with liberals. I had been thinking about this for some months. Then during a conversation with Gene Edward Veith, he said something that made it all clear. Dr. Veith was describing the old-line liberals in the 20th century. Here's what he said. In the churches... There was a sense of panic that, oh, people, the culture's changing, so if we're going to survive, we've got to go along with the culture. And so you had a movement in the Christian church to change Christianity according to the dominant culture. And that's what liberalism is, changing your theology to fit whatever the culture is. I suddenly realized that Dr. Veith was also describing many Bible-believing Christians today. That's what liberalism is, changing your theology to fit whatever the culture is. He was describing Bible-believing liberals. William Tiggy uh, recently observed of old-line liberals, Liberals do not think, since in their view there is no divine revelation with specific objective, and if one wants to use the term propositional content, since it's all a matter of feeling, you can't cling to any definitions, any confessional formulas. And since they're always invoking the Holy Spirit, chasing the Holy Spirit, since everything for them is the revelation of the Holy Spirit in the world, they play the game of, here he is on the plain, here he is on the mountain, and the only thing they have have to go by are social trends, which for them is where God is at, and the church has to keep up with it. But exactly the same thing could be said of 
many other conservative Christians today. Yes, they still affirm the divine revelation of the Bible in principle, but theologically they have adopted the liberals' way of thinking. John Armstrong has also noticed this, quote, At the end of the last century, theological liberalism told us that we needed to make Christianity attractive or acceptable to its cultured despisers. This type of concern was not new. The very tension of being in the world but not of the world has always been with the church. What was new was the way liberalism decided to advance the church before the world, namely by reinterpreting the message of the cross in light of the world's understandings and belief system. One of the most blatant examples of the compromise which flows out of this can be seen in the 1966 World Council of Churches dictum, quote, The world must set the agenda for the church. I would suggest that this idea formulated in the crucible of ecumenical dialogue, light and darkness, is not far from the seeker-sensitive approach, uh, approach adopted through church growth ideology of contemporary evangelicals. The fact that so many otherwise conservative Christians fail to see the similarity between themselves and liberals is just flat-out remarkable. The fact that so many Bible-believing liberals fail to see the disparity between their culture beliefs and their theological beliefs is astonishing, but there is a reason for it. So how Bible-believing are they? Bible-believing liberals affirm Scripture's inspiration and inerrancy. That's the main reason they consider themselves conservative Christians. After all, they think, I can't be a liberal. Liberals deny Scripture. But there is more than one way to deny Scripture. Michael Horton has written about the practical denial of Scripture. Here's what he says, quote, While evangelicals and other conservative Protestants hold to a high doctrine of Scripture, in principle, the last two decades have especially seen a growing disregard for making their sermons ex- expositions of Scripture. Rather, it's often the case that the Bible is used as a source book of quotations for what we really want to say. You see, you can affirm Scripture's authority in principle, even while denying it in practice. Bible-believing liberals aren't liberal in what they say about the Bible. Bible Bible-believing liberals are liberal in how they use the Bible. Now, here's an example. About 10 years ago, G.A. Pritchard wrote a landmark book on the most influential megachurch in America, Willow Creek Community Church. He uh, He wrote of the staff and the people of Willow Creek, quote, "...it would not be accurate or fair to depict them as theologically liberal." Liberal Christianity denies central Christian truth claims. However, there is a lack of emphasis on Christian truth at Willow Creek. Wilkin then goes on to say, Nevertheless, in some cases, Willow Creek's lack of emphasis ends up looking a lot like denial, as in the case of Pastor Nancy Beach. About the time Pritchard was publishing his book, Nancy Beach became one of Willow Creek's teaching pastors. You ask, how did Bible-believing Willow Creek end up with a woman pastor? Well, here's how. Willow Creek had women elders since its founding. But in the mid-1990s, a debate began over the inclusion of women at all levels of leadership. Dr. Gilbert Bilizikian is a founding member of Willow Creek and its resident theologian. In his 1985 book, Beyond Sex Roles, Bilizikian argued, among other things, that women should be pastors. Bilizikian's method was to highlight the apparent contradiction 
uh, contradictions in Paul's epistles. For example, Bill Ezekiel writes, The juxtaposition of Paul's approval of women prophesying with the absolute command for women not to speak in church and to remain silent as a sign of their subordination constitutes a monumental contradiction that only a state of mental dislocation could explain. In time, Bill Ezekiel's view and his way of reading the Bible won acceptance at Willow Creek. In January 1996, John Ortberg, one of Willow Creek's teaching elders, taught a two-hour class to church ministry leaders in which he said that staff needed to share the convictions of the church or study until they shared those convictions and they had a year to do so. The result of that study was a position paper. That paper is a classic example of how liberals read the Bible. Quote, the statement makes it clear the church's belief that, quote, when the Bible is interpreted comprehensively, it teaches the full equality of men and women in status, giftedness, and opportunity for ministry, despite a few scriptural texts that appear to restrict the full ministry freedom of women. Willow Creek affirms the authority of Scripture, but notice how they use the Scriptures. Paul's epistles only appear to restrict the pastoral office to men, but that appearance disappears when the Bible is interpreted comprehensively. This is just another way of saying if we disregard the Scriptural texts that say women can't be pastors, we discover that they can be pastors. Bible-believing liberals don't deny the inerrancy or inspiration of Scriptures, they just interpret the Bible comprehensively to make it say what they want. In the case of Willow Creek, interpreting the Bible comprehensively means explain the, explaining away the Bible passages that forbid what you want to do. Bible-believing liberals are Bible-believing in principle, but liberal in practice. In the 1970s, liberal denominations used this reasoning to introduce the ordination of women. Today, they are using the same reasoning to introduce the ordination of homosexuals. Will Bible-believing liberals follow suit? The leaders of Willow Creek insist that these changes have nothing to do with ch the changing culture. But I ask, then why have you changed your view on women in the church? Why have you departed from the historic interpretation of Paul's teaching on women. What changed? The answer is, of course, the culture changed. The culture changes and Bible-believing liberals change to keep up with it. Remember Dr. Veith's word. That's, quote, that's what liberalism is, changing your theology to fit whatever the culture is. Pritchard concludes, a serious critique of American culture from a Christian perspective is generally absent at Willow Creek. The fundamental reason for this failure is that Creekers do not think critically with the categories and content of Christian theology. Like it or not, many Bible-believing Christians are thinking and acting just like liberals. What else do many Bible-believing Christians have in common with liberals? Doctrinal minimalism. Quote, in things essential unity, in doubtful liberty, in all things charity. This is a truism for many Christians today. It is often attributed to St. Augustine, but Augustine never said it. In truth, the saying's origins are more recent in early German liberalism. The real author of this statement was a 17th century Lutheran, Peter uh, Mederlin. Mederlin's uh, lived during a time of doctrinal compromise in unionism between the Lutherans and the Reformed. Mederlin was disturbed by the doctrinal debates taking place and thought that insistence on doctrinal purity was satanic. 
Meterlin counseled a, minimal, uh, counseled a minimalist approach to doctrine. Quote, in a word, we're to observe unity in essentials, liberty in incidentals, and in all things charity. Our affairs would be certainly in a most happy situation. Liberal Christians have taken Meterlin's maxim to heart. But so have many Bible-believing Christians. When it comes to doctrine, they don't sweat the details. And just like liberals, when Bible-believing Christians talk about unity in, in essentials, it isn't altogether clear what those essentials are. Bishop T.D. Jakes the, was the keynote speaker for Willow Creek's August 2004 Leadership Summit. Jakes is a best-selling author, a megachurch pastor, and a popular tele-evangelist. Willow Creek's bookstore seeds uh, sells dozens of different books, tapes, CDs, and DVDs by Jakes. The only problem is, is that Jakes denies the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Is the Trinity essential or incidental at Willow Creek? To be sure, Willow Creek affirms the Trinity in its public statement of faith. But remember what Bible-believing liberals affirm in principle they often deny in practice. Meterlin's maxim assumes that false teaching is benign. Besides, the real danger comes from those who point out doctrinal error. Rick Warren has said, quote, Some of the most cantankerous Christians that I know are veritable storehouses of Bible knowledge, but they have not applied it. <laughs> they can give you facts and quotes and they can argue doctrine, but they're angry and they're very ugly people. <laughs> Sorry, I <laughs> I just, whenever I read Rick Warren saying something like that, I just crack up. <clears throat> Sorry. We continue. We've heard liberals say it for years. Now we're hearing Bible-believing Christians say it. Doctrine divides. Well, that is, insistence on doctrinal clarity and purity is divisive. On this subject, Warren Ecker echoes Meterlin's maxim, quote, I'm not going to get into a debate over the non-essentials. I won't try to change other denominations. Why be divisive? Warren downplays supposed theological conflicts between Christians. He sees them as a product of our limited knowledge of God. He dismisses such differences by appealing to how awesome God is. Quote, on earth we see through a glass darkly, so we all need a large dose of humility in dealing with our differences. God's ways are awesome and are far beyond human mental capabilities. He has no problem reconciling the supposed theological conflicts that we debate when ideas don't fit neatly into our logical, rational systems. Hmm, this sounds broad-minded, but is really complete nonsense. Can God reconcile a theology that says man is totally depraved with one that says he, he isn't? Can God reconcile a theology that teaches faith alone with one that teaches faith and works? Warren's idea would fit right in at the World Council of Churches. One of their latest documents says essentially the same thing as Warren, quote, a more recent ecumenical vision includes the search for a new paradigm, an image which could accommodate a diversity of truths under the same roof, under the same roof without diluting or annihilating any in the process of trying to bring them into convergence for the sake of reaching one common and binding apostolic truth. Mm -hmm. We've heard liberals say it for years. Now we're hearing Bible-believing Christians say it. Let's agree to disagree. A Willow Creek event demonstrated recently how far this idea could go. Shortly after the terrorist attacks of 2001, Bill Hybels invited a local Muslim imam, Fisal Hamuda, to speak at a weekend service. During the service, the imam asserted, quote, 
we Muslims believe in Jesus more than you do, in fact. Now, Heibel's ventured, ventured to disagree, but the misimpression stuck. Quote, I didn't know they believed in Jesus, church member Elizabeth Perez, 60, said after the service. I thought it was interesting how much we have in common. Don Matzett summed up the doctrinal minimalism of Bible-believing liberals well. Quote, Successful evangelical pastors like Bill Hybels and Robert Schuller are really no different than the successful modern liberal clergy, like Sloan Coffin and Harry Emerson Fosdick. While Coffin and Fosdick built their congregations by appealing to human reason, Hybels and Schuler grow a church by appealing to the feelings and the experience of people. While the classic liberal pastor questioned on the basics on the basis of reason and the truth of traditional Christian doctrine, the postmodern pastor ignores doctrine and focuses on methods which produce success. In 2004, Pastor James Perry made an impassioned plea to his church. What would it be like if we had a moratorium on issues that divide us and spent all of our time and energy focused on reaching out to those in our world who feel like outcasts and share God's love with them? It's my hope that we will be more concerned about extending God's grace than getting it right. Was Perry arguing for more evangelism? No. Was Perry pleading for greater missional efforts? Not really. Perry was speaking at a 2004 General Conference of the United Methodist Church in Pittsburgh, arguing for the full inclusion of active homosexuals in the church. For Perry, discussing what the Bible says about homosexuality was getting in the way of extending God's grace. We've heard liberals say it for years. Uh, now we're hearing Bible-believing Christians say it. The church is justified in using whatever means it deems necessary to carry out its mission. Again, Michael Horton describes this mindset well. Quote, Increasingly, we hear what unites us is mission and not theology. Doctrinal diversity is encouraged as long as we can all agree on the mission and its methods. Mission and evangelism are in danger of being exploited as get-out-of-jail-free cards for any capitulation to the culture that we can imagine. The ecumenical movement and liberal church bodies have been doing this for decades, but today it is common to hear the same mission-justifies-the-means argument from conservative Christians. Mark Middleberg writes, quote, The redemptive mission of the church is simply too important to let fear and traditional strongholds keep us from examining everything in light of our biblical God-directed vision. Notice the phrase, our biblical God-directed vision. Whatever happened to examining everything in light of the Bible itself? The mission blueprint has replaced the Bible. It, it must. For the Bible-believing liberal, the mission justifies the means. Rick Warren is famous for saying, never criticize what God is blessing. Warren uses his congregation's mission success to justify the sloppy doctrine in his books. Quote, I knew that by simplifying doctrine in a devotional format for the average person, I ran the risk of either understanding or uh, of of understating or overstating some truths. I'm sure I've done that, but I've decided I decided when I planted Saddleback in 1980 that I'd rather reach a large number of people for Christ than seek the approval of the of religious traditionalists. In the past 8 years, we've baptized over 11,000 new adult believers at our church. For the Bible-believing liberal, all means are neutral and even understanding or uh, understating or overstating some truths. The mission and its apparent success justifies it. George Barna likewise urges the church, quote, 
It is critical that we keep in mind a fundamental principle of Christian communication. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. Our message has has to be adapted to the needs of the audience. That's what Barna says. Therefore, Barna sees anything but the most pragmatic concerns as a waste of time. Quote, it behooves us to not waste time bickering about techniques and processes, but to study methods by which we can glorify our king and comply with the Great Commission. And C. Peter Wagner, father of the church growth movement, agrees, quote, We ought to see clearly that the end does justify the means. What else possible could justify the means? If the method I am, uh, I am using accomplishes the goal that I am aiming at, it is for that reason a good method. If, on the other hand, my method is not accomplishing the goal, how can I be justified in continuing to use it? Among Bible-believing liberals, the mission not only justifies whatever approach seems to work, it also serves as a convenient way to discredit critics. Mark Middleberg describes those who raise concerns about the means. For a variety of reasons, some people will uh, be unable to go along with you and other leaders in your efforts to reach lost people. There are some people who profess to be Christians, yet who don't care one whit about people outside of God's family. They are typically self-centered people who think that the church revolves around them and exists solely to meet their needs, and everyone else can just go to hell, literally. The Bible-believing liberal says, I'm justified in using whatever means I deem necessary to carry out the church's mission. If you oppose my means, you're opposing the mission. John Shelby Spong, perhaps the most liberal Christian uh, alive today, writes, quote, The language of original sin atonement, and atonement has emanated from Christian circles for so long that it has achieved the status of sacred mantra. In light of new circumstances, it is merely adjusted, never reconsidered. Yet upon closer inspection, these sacred concepts involve us in a new view of human life that is no longer operative. Joel Osteen, a Bible-believing Christian and pastor of the largest megachurch in America, says the same thing in simpler language. Quote, We've heard a lot about the judgment of God and what we can't do and what's going on to keep us what's going to keep us out of heaven, but it's time that people start hearing about the goodness of God and about a God that loves them, a God that believes in them, a God that wants to help them. Spong wants to do away with the concept of sin altogether. Osteen simply wants to stop talking about it. Instead, Osteen wants to emphasize the goodness of God. God wants us to have a heavenly, a healthy, positive self-image, to see ourselves as priceless treasures. He wants us to feel good about ourselves. God knows that we're not perfect, that we all have faults and weaknesses, that we all make mistakes, but the good news is God loves us anyway. And why does the perfect and holy God love us with all of our faults and weaknesses? Is it because Jesus lived a perfect life and died a perfect death in our place? No. His love is for you. His love for you is based on what you are, not on what you do. He created you as a unique individual. There has never been, nor will there ever be, another person exactly like you. Moreover, God sees you as a champion. He believes in you even more than you believe in yourself. Apparently, for Joel Osteen, sin is simply not a problem for God or for us. Bill Hybels, on the other hand, certainly believes that sin is a problem, but what Bible-believing liberals affirm in principle they often deny in practice. When an internal survey of Willow Creek members revealed that a large percentage of singles, 25% of singles, 38% of single parents, and 41% of divorced individuals admitting to having illicit sexual relations in the last six months, 
Heibel failed to Heibel's failed to focus on the seriousness of sin. Quote, uh, Heibel's uh, did not call the congregation to repent for the rebellion against a holy God. Instead, he emphasized God's compassionate love. Quote, we are a love-starved people with broken hearts that need the kind of repair that only he can give long-term. We need to uh, bring our brokenness into the light of his grace and truth. Yes, the members in the survey certainly might have been love-starved people with broken hearts, but they were also fornicators. Uh, When Bible-believing liberals dilute the Bible's message of sin, they also dilute the Bible's message of salvation. The gospel gets reduced to God loves you. Heibel's gospel often sounds largely therapeutic. Quote, God satisfies. He does something for us and in us that we can't do for ourselves. God meets our inner needs. He he quiets restlessness and turmoil. He ministers to longings. He soothes wounds. He calms fears and he satisfies our souls. Well, all of this is true, of course, but it's not the whole truth. What's what's missing? Well, in this gospel, we are presented as unsatisfied, unable, needy, restless, longing, wounded, and fearful, but not sinful. Uh, this is a gospel without sin. A gospel without sin satisfies sinners, but it doesn't save them. A gospel without sin requires a God who is merely good, not gracious, and forgiving. A gospel without sin requires a Jesus who is merely sympathetic, not our substitute on the cross. A gospel without sin is a gospel wherein Christ crucified is unnecessary. John Shelby Spong realizes this. He has done away with the cross. Maybe this is why Bible-believing liberals are doing away with it, too. The God loves you gospel is a gospel that any liberal could love. By contrast, here's what what St. Paul says. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Well, one thing is for sure, Paul was no liberal, Bible-believing or otherwise. God loves you isn't the gospel. The world is full of unbelievers who firmly believe that God loves them. Pritchard writes in his study of Willow Creek, All the seekers or weekend attenders I interview were convinced that God loves them. They held this belief before coming to Willow Creek. God loves you will not do. What unbelievers need to know is how God loves them. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, that we not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We've heard liberals say it for years. The church must change or die. The culture calls the shots. We must reread the Bible to fit the culture. When it comes to doctrine, don't sweat the details. Our differences don't matter anyway. After all, doctrine divides. It's the mission that really unites us. And when it comes to that mission, we're justified in using whatever means we deem necessary. Remember... People just need to know God loves them. Now we're hearing Bible-believing Christians saying the very same things. The old-line liberals considered the gospel irrational. Bible-believing liberals considered it irrelevant. The old-line liberals criticized the gospel. Bible-believing liberals are trying to give it a makeover. The old-line liberals tried to deconstruct the gospel. Bible-believing liberals are trying to reinvent it. 
Old line liberals did their best to discredit the gospel. Bible-believing liberals are doing their best to shift the focus away from the cross. Do Bible-believing liberals realize how liberal they really are? No. Are, are, are they well-intended? Well, certainly. But some of the old line liberals were well-intended, too. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, He is full. Hell is full of good intentions. When the church follows the advice of liberals, Bible-believing or otherwise, the gospel message suffers. When liberals, Bible-believing or otherwise, have their say and have their way, the cross ends up obscured. When the cross is obscured, sinners go unsaved. This alone is reason enough to turn a deaf ear to the advice of these well-intentioned liberals, Bible-believing or otherwise. Bible-believing believing liberals say the church must change or die, but they cannot tell you what the church will be preaching 5, 10, 20 years in the future. No one really knows. It all depends on how things change. In fact, Bible-believing liberals cannot even say that the church will be preaching at all in the future. Maybe it will be doing poetry slams, kabuki theater, or walking the labyrinth. No one really knows. It all depends on how things change. Do you really want to entrust your children and grandchildren to this kind of a church? Bible-believing liberals say the church must change or die, but change can't ensure the survival of the church. The survival of the church depends entirely on one who lived and died and lives again forever, the one who does not change, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day, earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. By the way, from the footnotes, the first statement from this article belongs to Rick Warren perhaps the most influential conservative evangelical in the world today. Rick Warren, first person stifled by structure, Baptist Press, September twenty second, 2003. The second statement belongs to John Shelby Spong, perhaps the most notorious liberal in the world today. Yeah, so when we opened this article with two different quotes that sounded exactly the same, one was Rick Warren, the other was John Shelby Spong. There was no difference between the two. So, why do I feel the need, the need for creeds? Why? Because doctrinal precision, theological precision, doctrinal accuracy, biblical fidelity demands it. The church has used these things throughout its entire history. And to chuck them, we end up in liberalism, Bible-believing or otherwise. Now, I want to point something out. There was some more to James McDonald's post that I wanted to read. Okay? And I'm going to reread what his comments were regarding T.D. Jakes and read just a little bit more. Because when you do that, you see that, well, James McDonald actually holds the same position as Bible-believing liberals. Let me read this again. Jake says, I affirm the doctrine of the Trinity as I find it in Scripture. I believe it is clearly presented but not detailed or nuanced. 
I believe God is very happy with his word as given to us and does not wish us to update or clarify anything that he has purposely left opaque. Some things are stark and immensely clear, such as the deity of Christ, and others are taught but shrouded in mystery, such as the Trinity. I do not trace my beliefs to creedal statements that seek clarity on things the Bible clouds with mystery. I do not require T.D. Jakes or anyone else to define the details of Trinitarianism the way that I might. His website states clearly that he believes God has existed eternally in three manifestations. I am looking forward to hearing him explain what he means by that. I am also excited to hear him state his views on money, which may be closer to Scripture than the monasticism currently touring Reformed world. I believe T.D. Jakes shows immense humility by being willing to step outside of his own circles to interact with brothers in Christ who may see certain things differently. Getting brothers together who believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone but normally don't interact is what the Elephant Room is all about. Talking about issues that separate with grace and truth is what the Elephant Room is all about. We are greatly honored that T.D. Jakes has agreed to participate. So there you go. Tomorrow on uh, Fighting for the Faith, we're going to spend some more time uh, exploring T.D. Jakes's view regarding the Godhead and uh, and provide a commentary on what he's stated uh, by Elliot Miller of the Christian Research Institute. Okay, we are up on our second break. We've obviously run long, and when we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon from a guy I can't find a doctrinal statement for, so I have no way of knowing what he believes. We'll see if we can figure it out based upon uh, what he says during his sermon, which is kind of a miserably bad way of having to try to figure something out, don't you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevens. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. 
Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's sermon review time, and this isn't exactly a sermon, but you'll see what I mean here in a minute. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today is, well, it's, I don't know if this is really a sermon. It's kind of a video podcast um, by a, a group called Grace Walk. Yeah, you can find them at gracewalk.org. The name of the uh, uh, preaching lecture thing is um, from a uh, series on the book of Colossians entitled The Triumph of Jesus Over Religion, the si- title of this particular particular lecture, Chosen by God. Now, I scoured this website, and I couldn't easily find, in fact, I didn't find at all, a um, um, uh, any outline of what this guy teaches. And by the way, the uh, pastor is Dr. Uh, Steve McVeigh. No creed, no confession of faith, no clear doctrinal statement. Um, so we're left to just kind of wondering. And that's one of the reasons why I picked this. But not only that, there's some strange things said in this sermon. So um, let's, well, lecture, I, I, video podcast, I don't know what you call it. Anyway, let me kill the, uh, the music here. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Steve McVeigh in his lecture thingy called Chosen by God. And because I have no clue what this guy believes, I've just got to listen really carefully because I can't point to anything that he claims that he really subscribes to except for some document called 101 Lies Taught in Church Every Sunday. Not quite a doctrinal statement, but anyway, here is Dr. Steve McVeigh from Grace Walk. Here, here we go. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Sunday Preaching. I'm Steve McVeigh. I hope your uh, week is going well and that uh, you're growing in grace and enjoying uh, experiencing his life flowing out of you. That's what this Christian... Uh, <clears throat> experiencing his life flowing out of me. Yeah, um, that sounds like something oozing, and I, if I had something oozing, I'd see a doctor, but okay. In life is all about is understanding the union that we have with our Father through Jesus in the Spirit and uh, then living out that reality from day to day. That's, you know, that's what he came to do. The incarnation is all about Jesus coming down here to, uh, to, to mediate God's life to us and to mediate our humanity back to the Father so that we could brought into the, be brought into the great dance, as my friend Baxter Kruger calls it, and be a part of, uh, be a part of that uh, Trinitarian circle of life and love. And, and... The, <clears throat> the Trinitarian circle of life. Um... Yeah, I've never heard of that in the Bible, although I am um I'm convinced that I have I've heard something about the 
Circle of Life. Um, you familiar with this movie? <laughs> Sing along if you know it. I think this just came out in 3D in the theaters. Enough of that. Okay, so um, now, so here I am, like you know, no way of knowing if this guy's a wolf in sheep's clothing. No idea of knowing if he's a sound biblical teacher, and he's making allusions to things that I've never even heard of in the scripture, like some kind of circle of life thing. Um, yeah, this is not a good way to start off a um, well, a, a video podcast sermony type thing. Live from that, and I tell you. Uh, when the Lord began showing me this reality, it just began to turn my life upside down. And I- mm-hmm. The Lord started showing you this reality. Um, <clears throat> that's a problematic statement. Um, yeah, usually when God shows me things, it's like in his word and, you know, and it comes out of his word and only his word. I get nervous when people talk about God showing them things. Yeah, that's kind of a, that's usually a red flag sentence. I've experienced a greater sense of joy in my faith than I had ever known before. And that's my goal here as I'm teaching every week is to help you grow in your uh, understanding of who you are and who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, the apostle said, grow in grace. He did. And in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that, that's what the Bible's all about. The Bible is, is not a rule book, but the Bible is a, a picture album that shows us Jesus and shows us the love of the Father. A uh, picture album. Hmm. It's weird. You know, there's another guy out there who uses that same metaphor. You know who it is? Brian McLaren. Weird that he's using the same metaphor as Brian McLaren. It's just kind of odd. We continue. The Bible is, is not a rule book, but the Bible is a, a picture album that shows us Jesus and shows us the love of the Father and uh, the communion of the Spirit. And as we go through the Bible, our faith is strengthened and as, as we understand more of uh, His life in us. And right on. So we're yeah. going through the book of Colossians. We come today in our study in this book to the third chapter where we finished last time with uh, verse uh, 7. 
And today we're going to pick up in verse 8. Last time we talked about a godly lifestyle. And today I'm going to, uh, living a godly lifestyle last time. Today I'm going to speak to you on the topic of being chosen by God. And you'll remember as we've been going through this together that we're looking at what it means, the implications of of what it means to say that we all have died with Jesus, we have been buried with him and raised together with him. Yeah, you know, uh, let me, uh, <clears throat> I'll provide a little bit of biblical commentary myself here. Let's take, if you have your Bible, please open to the book of Colossians. What a fantastic epistle written against the Colossian heresy, by the way, uh, which had come in. And the Colossian heresy was based, you know, kind of a legalistic thing that was going on there, uh, a Judaizing element, if you would, um, with some other strange features mixed in. But uh, Colossians chapter 2, let's get a little bit of context here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, understanding that the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that you, may, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. <clears throat> For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see you, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all and rule of all and all authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, you have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. <clears throat> so uh, we're buried with Christ in our baptism. Keep in mind, Baptism is God's work, it's not your work. This is what the scriptures teach and what the creeds confess. Nicene Creed, uh, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So baptism is God's work. When you when you read the uh, the Greek on this, the, the verbs make it very clear. Uh, you ain't doing nothing in baptism, it's being done to you. That's what's going on here in, uh, in Colossians. Yeah, Colossians clearly states that God is the actor here because in our baptism, we are buried with Christ. God is the one who does it. Not with the circumcision done by hands, circumcision done by Christ, okay? So uh, <clears throat> you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about their visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a grow, growth that is from God. <clears throat> if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and to teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ in baptism, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you also must forgive. Okay. So that's the context of this, and I read that, oddly enough, from the NASB, but I think you get the gist of what's going on there. Let's continue here with Dr. Stephen McVeigh. Not sure where he's going with this, because I have no clue what this guy believes. Now, last time we looked together and talked about how, uh, and the, well, I think time before also I mentioned it, where Paul talked about that when Christ, uh, who is in us, is revealed, then we'll also be revealed with him in glory. And I want you to understand, this is going to be very clear today in the Scripture. This is going to be very clear when I say that Jesus is in you. Jesus lives in you. And uh, you, may, uh, you may experience the, the, beneficial, uh, the experiential benefits of that, or you may not. If you don't know that Jesus Christ really lives in you, He didn't just forgive your sin and take you to heaven. He came down here to join Himself together in union with you so that you and I could be brought into the union with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a triune God in heaven today, three in one. Yeah. And this God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has brought us into this circle of life and love so that we... Hmm. So God has brought us into the circle of life and love. Um, yeah, that sounds completely foreign to the scriptures, and... Um... Nowhere do I see that in any of the uh, confessional statements uh, or the creeds. Hmm. So already we got some really problematic things going on here. We now are in union with him. There's no such thing as separation. There's no such thing as that. I remember my friend, uh, well, I better make... So there's no such thing as separation. Okay. 
Watch what he does here. Maybe I shouldn't say his name. A friend in Australia, I don't know if he'd want me to say this. I don't think he'd mind, but I won't say his name in case. A good uh, dear, dear brother in Australia, when I was there, who shared with me about his dad who almost died, and his dad was not a believer. And his dad, uh, well, his dad did end up dying, but he was in a coma, and he, he said that his dad woke up from this coma, and he, he looked at him, he said, son. Now, he said his dad had always been very antagonistic toward Christianity and would not even acknowledge that his son was a pastor. Okay, what's the source of this spiritual information? The Bible? or hearsay, based on someone's experience. But he said he woke up from this coma and he said, son, he said, this whole idea of separation from God, he said, it's a lie. It's an illusion. There's no such thing as separation. And he said to his son, believe it, tell it, believe it, make sure everybody knows it. And mm -hmm. no such thing as separation. And we basically just have to trust a guy who was in a coma and woke up. Mm -hmm. There were some other things that transpired in him visiting with his sister and telling her about it, but then that very night he died. But, you know, I, I found it very exhilarating when, when uh, my friend shared this story with me of his dad waking up, who had not been a believer, but in a, in a coma. This man experienced the reality that there's no such thing as separation. And he um, Yeah, um, that's weird. Um, hmm. You know, it's one of those weird things. Um, let's take a look at uh, what Jesus said. You know, Matthew chapter twenty-five. Um, well, you know, let's let's. I mean, let's spend a little bit of time in there and see if the Bible teaches and if Jesus himself talked about anything to do with, um, you know, separation. Okay, Matthew chapter twenty-five. Um, yeah, here's what it says. Um. When the Son of Man, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The judgments already take place here. They're separated by what they are. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Well, Lord, well, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, it's important to note that in the book of Revelation, it talks about those who end up going to eternal punishment, otherwise known as the eternal fire or the lake of fire. And it says that the, you know, the torment, that, you know, this, the suffering of their torment goes up before God forever and ever. So truly, the, those who are in hell are not separated from the presence of God. In fact, they are suffering 
God's righteous wrath and indignation for eternity. So, yeah, they're not separated from God. They truly are connected to God forever um, in the lake of fire, which is basically burning with his wrath. Just something to point out. But this is kind of weird where this is going at this point. And, again, I couldn't find a single doctrinal statement or creed or anything that I could point to to figure out what this guy believes. So I'm just having to, you know, just kind of take the his statements as they come and compare them to the Word of God. Um, and already, I mean, we're only 4 minutes, 36 seconds into this thing, and already we got some big problems. He woke up just long enough to tell his son that. There is no separation from God. You tell people that. Friend, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. God was in. Yeah, no, that's not the gospel. Uh, if you want to know how the Bible defines the gospel, the gospel is actually defined for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what it says. Verse 3. For I delivered to you... Well, actually, let me back it up. Verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So the Apostle Paul is defining. He's reminding them of the gospel that he preached to the church, uh, the people in, at the church in Corinth, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So this is the gospel he preached, that they received, in which they stand, and what, and the, and the gospel by which they are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, you'll notice here that the Apostle Paul's language sounds like a creed. And the reason it sounds like a creed is, well, because it is. In fact, Dr. Gary Habermas is one of the guys who's done a lot of research on this, and he's the one who's pointed out the definitive creedal language that's going on here. Now, I would like to point out to you that this creedal language here, that Jesus was died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, okay? That language sounds a lot like what we get in the Nicene Creed. Let me read to you the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, and here's the important part, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. Now, I want to point something out here. The Nicene Creed reads like an expanded version of this micro-creed that we have here in 1 Corinthians 15. And the Apostle Paul says this is the gospel that he preached, the good news that he proclaimed that Christ died for our sins, or he say in the Nicene Creed, who for us men and for our salvation 
yeah, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So the Bible defines the gospel as this. The gospel is not in this passage defined as there's no separation from God, and nor does the Nicene Creed, which the church has confessed since 321 AD, nor does the Nicene Creed confess the gospel as that there's no separation from God. So now we've got a problem here. We've got a problem in that uh, Dr. McVeigh here is um, equating something with the gospel that neither the Bible nor the creeds, which are, you know, basically, you know, compose what the Bible confesses, um, ever say about the gospel. So um, let me back that up so that you can hear it again, because I think it's going to be cogent as we move forward here. But in a, in a coma, this man experienced the reality that there's no such thing as separation. And he woke up just long enough to tell his son that there is no separation from God. You tell people that. Friend, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Yes. Not counting their trespasses against them. Uh-huh. And now he's given us this message of reconciliation. Yes. So we go out into the world and we challenge folks with even even Christian people who don't believe the gospel. They don't believe it. They think they're joined in union, but oh, somebody out here. No, you have to believe to be in union with God. You have to believe to have your sins forgiven. You have to believe to be justified. Wait a minute. The Bible says we're justified by his blood. The Bible said God was in the Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That made us passive in that situation. It, it was an action imposed upon us by the grace and goodness of God. Oh, of course you have to believe to experience it. Of course you believe to enjoy it. But listen, it's not some sort of existential situation. Boy, we got a problem here. Um, yeah, uh, let me find another passage for you. Hold on, let me look this up on my Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus speaking, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But the wrath of God remains on him. So, yeah, um, notice what he's doing here. He's selectively citing passages out of context and basically making the assertion that the gospel is that nobody is separated from God. That's not the gospel. And then he quotes the passage that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Absolutely, most certainly that is true. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus himself says that whoever believes in him should not perish. Uh huh. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's Jesus' word from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And John himself puts the finishing touches and the exclamation point at the end of that sentence in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, yeah, we've got some serious problems here because, uh, well, uh, Dr. McVeigh has run afoul of the creeds, the historic Christian faith that is confessed in the creeds, and he's run afoul of uh, God's word, and specifically uh, uh, the words of Jesus Christ himself. Maybe that's the reason why he doesn't have a clear confession that he subscribes to that you can look at in summary. Where our belief makes real the finished work of Jesus, it's real whether we believe it or not. Existentialism would say, well, if you believe it, then it becomes real because you believe. No, no, no. It's real whether you believe it or not. But, oh, when you believe how it sets you free, how it transforms you, how it causes you to enter into the joy of the Lord and begin to experience the life that Jesus came to give us all. And so separation is an illusion, and we're going to see that as we look this. Separation is an illusion, yeah. Yeah, tell that to the goats on the last day. We're talking about understanding our identity. And I mean, whether you're a believer or not a believer, you need to understand what God has done in Christ through the Spirit uh, by, uh, for you on your behalf. Yeah. And so we talked about how we were uh, died, buried, and raised together with Him. By baptism, that's what Colossians 2 says. And how that changes our behavior. And so now... Paul comes on down. It's more than a change in behavior. Uh, we have a new man there. Our hearts are circumcised by Christ. And let's pick up with verse, um, let's see, where did we stop last time? Let's pick up with verse 8. He, he says, having understood who we are in Jesus, who Jesus is in us, now with that knowledge we're empowered so that we can, in verse 8, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. You see, this is really, salvation is, an, is if I can say it this way, salvation is not just an event. It's not a transaction that happens at a given point in time and bang, it's done and there's no more to it. It's not like you get a stamp and now your passport to heaven is stamped. And so oh, you just sit back and wait to go to heaven. No. Salvation refers to complete wholeness. There is a sense in which... Mm, complete wholeness. 
Sounds like a modern-day psychological category rather than a theological category. We were saved 2,000 years ago at the cross, right? I mean, how could we deny that? That's where salvation was purchased. Let's go back beyond that. As my friend Craig Snyder often... Uh, can I point something out here? You said it's not a transaction, yet you made it clear that our salvation was purchased. Don't you think that's just a smidge contradictory? I just, you know, one... ...likes to point out in his teaching, and he's right. There is a sense in which we were saved before time began, because the cross is eternal. The cross is eternal. So the cross was before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. That's weird. There's a sense in which, yeah, that's correct. But, again, what does the creed say in, in this matter? Um, this is most helpful because, uh, you know, notice we're, we're slipping out of history now and into something that's, uh, well, a little bit more slippery. But the creed says this. Um, okay, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. Yeah, um, see, the thing is, is this, is that all of the Gospels and the Creed, which is a summary of the teachings found in the Gospels, tell us that Jesus Christ died on a Friday afternoon. Three, about three in the afternoon, the same time the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, and that Pontius Pilate was the governor who gave the order for Jesus to be executed. So um, it's weird because at this point we're, you know, he says, yeah, 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 there's, a part, there's an idea to, the God, to, the, to Jesus' cross where it happened in eternity. And yeah, but see, the, the thing is, is that what we're really to be focusing on is that what did Paul say? Christ was crucified for our sins and was buried and raised again on the third day. Um, and this was witnessed by people. See, Peter wasn't there from all eternity. Paul wasn't there from all eternity. And Pontius Pilate, he wasn't there from all eternity. Um, see, the cross that uh, that all four Gospels and the Creed point us to, and Paul points us to in 1 Corinthians 15, that's a literal, historical bodily event that took place in human history with particular human characters uh, who were government officials like Pontius Pilate at the time. Uh, Jesus uh, literally cried out, you know, to Telestai, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit um, at, you know, roughly three in the afternoon on a Friday. Um, so, yeah, we, we got some problems here because this guy is all over the map theologically, and um, again, I just think that might be the reason why it's so difficult to find a precise doctrinal creed or confession or statement that this guy subscribes to. And then it found its expression in time. So there's a sense in which salvation came before the foundation of the world. We've been in Christ before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. And then there's a sense in which it found expression in time at, at Calvary. And then there's a sense in which it found its expression at the moment that you believed. You believed the gospel. And there is a sense in which it continues to find its expression as we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus and Christ is formed in us so that our soul which is our mind, will, and emotions, and our body, our actions, conform increasingly to the reality that lives in us, who is Jesus. So salvation is not just, a, just an instantaneous transaction that takes place and now it's finished, it's over, there's no more. No. Yeah, that's what Jesus said when he, because again, the transaction, Christ redeemed us. That's what the, the redemption is purchasing talk. 
um, by his blood, which was shed on the cross. And there was a point in which Jesus said, it's finished, it's done, and he died. Weird. Um, hmm. It's a gift called Jesus. And our growth in understanding Christ in us and Christ as our life is a, is a progressive um, sanctific sanctification is the Bible word that happens on and Is it me or is this guy just like completely convoluted? Uh, he'd do better if he actually had an outline, you know, like a creed or something. On throughout this life. So he says, because we know who we are, we have, we, we, we've seen Jesus in us. We've recognized him and who he is, what he's done, and we believed that. And by having believed now, we know Christ is our life source and we are empowered. We're empowered to live the life that honors him. And it is by his life in us that we're able to put aside these sins that he mentions in verse 8 and 9. It is by verse 10, putting on the new self, the new self. What does that mean? It means we acknowledge and recognize who Christ is it's about focusing on Jesus and our life in him. You don't ever come over you don't ever overcome anger and slander and abusive speech all these things. You don't lying, you don't ever overcome any sin by focusing on the sin. Paul said in Romans if you set your mind on the things of the flesh you'll reap the things of the flesh. But if you set your mind on the things of the spirit you'll reap the things of the spirit. So we are to set our minds on Jesus. And as we set our minds on Jesus, we put on the new self. The Christ life, that means we begin to wear outwardly what is true of us inwardly. And we said, it says that we are being renewed in verse 10 to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, I want you to look at the word true there and circle it in verse 10. A lot of people have a knowledge about Jesus, but it's a false knowledge. It's not true. A lot of people envision that Jesus came into them to help them keep the law. A lot of folks think that Jesus just forgave them of their sins and he came just so they could go to heaven. No, no. That's one of the problems I have with universalism and Calvinism is the focus to me and seems to be almost entirely on whether people are going to heaven or hell. And I want to tell you, that is not the focus of the New Testament gospel. The focus of the New Testament, Paul never mentioned hell one time. The apostle. Mm hmm. Okay. Um, you mind if I challenge that? Did Paul ever mention hell by name? Is that even an argument? The The answer is Paul never said the word hell. This is absolutely true. I, I cannot find a single instance where Paul mentions hell. However, I would like to point something out, and that is, is that Paul uses a synonymous phrase uh, when he talks about hell. Um, let me... <clears throat> Uh, if Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul wrote that. Um, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Um, yeah, let's see here. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God.
Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much uh, patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedient. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, yeah, the Apostle Paul never says the word hell. This is absolutely true. Jesus says it a lot, though. This isn't really an argument, though. And uh, the, what does the creed say? And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. So, yeah, um, the, and when you read the ancient rule of faith in the church fathers, it talks about those who go to the eternal fire, uh, which is what Jesus said. That's his phrase. So, yeah, sitting here saying that Paul never mentioned hell is kind of a non-secular argument uh, from Dr. McVeigh here. Paul never mentioned hell once. Did you know that? The New Testament gospel is not about whether we go to heaven and hell. If it were, if that, if, if preaching about hell was part of the gospel, why didn't Paul preach it? Paul said, mm, how come Jesus preached it? Weird, huh? I mean, this is just crazy stuff. But I'm not shown to declare to you the whole counsel of God, but he never mentioned hell. No, the New Testament gospel is not about going to heaven and hell. The gospel is about being joined in union in Trini the Trinitarian life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah, again, your your gospel doesn't jive with Paul's gospel, and uh, you know, and that I just read it for us in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. And yeah, the Apostle Paul never says hell, but he continually refers to the wrath of God that's soon to be revealed, and the wrath of God to come. And I just cited the passages that prove that. Again, uh, yeah, your teaching is like all over the map. I mean, it's really. It makes me wonder. Did you patch this theology together on your own? Um, yeah, that it's it's like you cobbled together your own theology, and um, it shows. Um, this isn't the theology that the church has confessed from the beginning. Weird. And living in that life, and allowing, and living from out of that life, allowing that life to flow through us. That's the true knowledge of the gospel. It's not about the gospel is not you can go to heaven and avoid hell if you'll ask Jesus into your heart. You don't ever, ever, ever find that in the scripture. Never do you see them telling people to ask Jesus into their heart. Now, I agree with that. The Bible nowhere ever has a single instance of anyone inviting Jesus into their heart. The Bible says nothing of the sort. Ever. The New Testament is filled with Christians who declare, who proclaim the finished work of Jesus and then say to folks, now believe it. It's finished. It's not something you have to finish. It doesn't happen because of your faith. You're not forgiven because of your faith. You're not put into union or because of your faith. You're not justified because of your faith. 
It's because of him. Paul said it in Corinthians. In first- okay, again, I guess. Um, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to make a, a point, at, you know, and the idea here is, is that uh, he's making it sound like faith is something we conjure up within ourselves, but uh, the scriptures make it clear that faith is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Your salvation and your faith. Faith is a gift from God. So you are saved by grace through faith because faith is not something that is your doing. It says here... It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. It is not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith. And so, you know, it's very clear throughout Scripture that our faith is what justifies us, and our faith is not our doing. Our faith is a gift given to us by God. Man, this guy's all over the map. First Corinthians 1, verse 30, I think, the last verse of the chapter. He said, it is by his doing that you're in Christ Jesus. It's not by your doing. It's not by, why are you in Christ Jesus? Well, because I walked down the aisle because I, when no, I. No, because I was given faith as a gift from God. I was brought to repentance and the forgiveness of my sins, and that's all God's work. I was a young boy and shook the preacher's hand and told him I wanted to be saved. Why are you in union with God? Well, it's because I had that first confirmation. Why are you in union? It was because I was baptized as a baby. No, no, no. All those things are outward expressions. But the re- mm, It's weird because uh, when you read all the language regarding baptism, it's clear that it's his work, not ours. What does Peter say? Second, uh, Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, passive, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's exactly what the creed confesses. One baptism for the forgiveness of sins. The reason why the creed says for the forgiveness of sins is because that's what scripture teaches. Baptism is for. Reality is. The reality is Jesus did it. You're in union with the Father through the Spirit. By the Son. By the Son Jesus. He's the one that did it. It's Him. That's the true knowledge. And he says, and, and so we, as we put on this new self, we become renewed to this true knowledge. And that's what's taking place in some of you right now as you watch this and, and listen to this teaching every week. You're being renewed. It's messing with your mind, as I always say. It's messing with your mind. And you're thinking, wait a minute. I've heard people say Steve McVeigh's gone off the deep end. He's wrong. I've heard some say this teaching is not right. This doesn't agree with what I grew up with. But, 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 you say, there's something deep down inside me that... It sounds true. Could grace be that big? Could the love of God be that good? And there's this, there's this twinge of thought that comes up in your head and says, I think this may be right. Did, did you know that's that? Yeah, that's kind of a weird argument. Look inside of yourself. Is this like the Mormon equivalent? It's like the equivalent of the Mormon burning in the bosom. Yeah, you look inside yourself and you feel a twinge, and the twinge tells you he might be right. Uh, yeah, I don't work that way. Um, my, my, yeah, my twinges don't tell me nothing. Uh, I, I don't even trust them. So I just go with what God's word clearly says. And, and already, I mean, we're only 13 minutes into this, uh, thing. We're about halfway done. And, 
And already there's some significant problems with what you're teaching because this isn't what the church has taught from the beginning. And it shows a kind of a mishandling of the text. It's as if he cobbled this theology together himself all by him, his lonesome as like, you know, one of those do-it-yourself home improvement projects down in his basement, you know, a few years ago and is now teaching everybody this theology that he created. That, that's the Holy Spirit guiding you into all truth as he promised that he would do. Yeah, the God- yeah uh, that whole thing about the Holy Spirit guiding into truth, that was not actually promised to you or to me. That was actually promised to the disciples. Um, yeah, if you have your Bible... Flip on over to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 16. Uh, This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples, starting in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, the disciples, into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but uh, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Yeah, see, the, thing, the promise in John chapter 16 that the, um, the Spirit will guide them into all truth wasn't a general promise that the Spirit will guide you and me into all truth. That was a promise made specifically to the apostles, not you and I. The gospel is that good. God's grace is that big. And Paul says in verse 14 that as the Holy Spirit works in us and we begin to have this true knowledge, not this church knowledge, not this religious knowledge, not this... Mm, not church knowledge, huh? Yeah. yeah, the church doesn't know what it's teaching, doesn't know what it's doing. Yeah, like those creeds, yeah. You know, traditional knowledge, knowledge of tradition, but biblical, true knowledge revealed by the Spirit. As that happens, he says there... Are- yeah, the problem is the categories he's operating in aren't true. The The church went to the scriptures when it formulated the creeds. These are norma normata. These are ruled rules or normed norms. And they come directly out of the scripture. This isn't just, quote, church knowledge. What the church confessed from the beginning is what the Bible confesses and teaches. There is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Now, look look what true knowledge does. Oh, this is powerful. Look at your Bible. This is one of those times I have to say, look at your Bible. Cause you- yeah, I've been looking at it the whole time, and every time I compare what you're saying to what it says, there's like a big difference. You've got to see, this is not my opinion. This is what the Bible says. He said back in verse 10, Colossians 3, he said, when you put on the new self, then you begin to be renewed to a true knowledge according to Jesus, and it is this renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Look at the verse. 
Yeah, look, I just read it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's great. Look at it. I want you to see it. Yeah, I've seen it, and uh, yeah, okay. I feel adamant about this. Look, that's great. Yeah, so do I. Look at it. Verse ten. Read it. Don't don't just listen right now. I'm, yeah, I've read it. Would you like me to read it to you in the Greek? I could do that. Look at it in verse 10. I'm going to read it. Follow along in your Bible. And he says, you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You're, this true knowledge is more in line with the real, who Jesus really is. Verse mm-hmm. That's found in scripture. What does Jesus say? Lord, sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Thy word is truth. The only place where we can go to get true knowledge about Jesus or, you know, to have our minds renewed is Scripture. 11 is a renewal, because this does change your mind. This is a new look. This uh, this is a new understanding, a new perspective. You're renewed. You get an, the old viewpoint passes away, and there's this renewing, a new perspective, in which there is no distinction between people. Speaking to his contemporaries, he mentioned Greek and Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythians, slave and freeman, free man. There's no difference between people. That's what the true knowledge will show you. But Christ is all and in all. You say, well, it doesn't mean in all people. He means in all things. Oh, really? He just said Greeks. People, is that a pe- person or a thing? People are a thing. Jews, people are a thing. Uh, who did he write this letter to? Who did the Apostle Paul write this letter to under the inspiration of the Spirit? Did the Apostle Paul write this to the world or to the church? That was in in Colossae. This wasn't written to the world. This was written to the church. Yes. Remember what I just read from Jesus' own words. The one who believes is saved. The one who does not believe is condemned already. And the wrath of God remains on him. Read the Gospel of John chapter 3. Circumcised people, uncircumcised people. Barbarian people. Scythian people, slave people, free man people. He's t- yeah, what this means is that in the church, all who are in Christ, that uh, we're all brothers and sisters together. We're all part of the family of God, that uh, we don't look and we don't make judgments against people by saying, oh, yeah, you're a Jew. Sorry, can't hang out with you. Oh, you're a, you're a Scythian, you're a slave, or you're, you know, whatever. No, because in the kingdom of God, in Christ, we're all in Christ, we see each other as brother, not according to the distinctions of the world, which would have us look down or judge other people based upon those concepts. Again, this was written to the church. Talking about people. He's not talking about things like God is omnipresent. That's not what he's saying. Look at it in context. Christ is all and in all. You mean Christ is in the Greek, yeah. And the Jew, yeah. And the circumcised, uh-huh. And the uncircumcised, check. Barbarian, yeah. Scythian, mm-hmm. Slave, yep. Free man, right. Yeah, you forgot the the overall context of the letter. This was written to the church, people who believe in Christ. Why does this make people mad? Why does this make religious folks mad? Yeah, if, if you disagree with him, you're just a religious folk. Mm, okay. Religion is so exclusive. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, that's why Jesus excluded people because they wouldn't believe. It's an exclusive club where it says, you don't have it and I do. 
No, that's not what it says. It says, repent and believe. Christ died for you. That's what it says. And and what? how did the Apostle Paul put it? Let me find this real quick. In Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 13, uh, it says this, starting at verse 13. I'm going to jump around just a little bit to make the point, but watch this. Uh, now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands, and he said, Men of Israel and those who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. So then Paul goes on uh, in this sermon to basically outline what God did in the history of Israel and get to the point, verse 23, of this man's offspring, David. It says this, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Not he, but no, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled by condemning him, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had now come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people." And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But uh, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. So as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was, what, uh, what was spoken by Paul and reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Did you catch that? The Apostle Paul, when he preached in the synagogue, warned them to not be like scoffers, to not harden their hearts. Because he says, verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. And then he warns them, make sure that you don't harden your hearts and that you be astounded and perish. And then when they reviled him on the next Sabbath, the next Saturday, Paul says to them, since you deem yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So, no, the uh, Christian, biblical Christians don't go, neener, 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 I have something you don't. No, the biblical Christian confesses with the Apostle Paul, sadly, that those who refuse to repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they have deemed themselves unworthy of eternal life. They don't want to be with God. They hate the light, as Jesus said in John chapter 3. We continue. This is the Bible. This is so clear in Scripture. Go back to Romans 5. Go back to Romans 5 a minute. Look at verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died, how many? All. Everybody is a lot. That's many. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many, the same many. Many, the many, everybody is many. All of us, that constitutes many. We all died in Adam. Much more. Oh, Paul, are you sure you want to say much more? Because most of the church these days believe that everybody died in Adam, but only some people are made alive in Christ. Don't say much more, Paul. That's not right. Well, let me tell you, this Bible is right. It's, Bible. it's weird because the Apostle Paul, in preaching there in, in Acts chapter 13, makes it clear that they've got to believe in those who reviled him consider themselves unworthy of life. It's not that Christ didn't die for their sins. Christ did die for their sins. The Scriptures, I'm sorry, you Calvinists, it's just flat out true. The Scriptures do not teach that Christ only died for the elect. That is not actually taught in the Scriptures. Uh, and this guy's kind of keyed in on it. But what he's doing here, it's like he's reacting against something. And in his reaction, he's ended up in the opposite ditch. Bible is right. Verse 15, Romans 5, look at your Bible. Not listen to Steve McVeigh. Look at your Bible. I'm just pointing you to the Scripture. If by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift, which is Jesus and his salvation in him, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Much more? 
If everybody was affected by Adam, but not everybody was affected by Jesus, how dared Paul have the nerve to say much more? No, everybody was affected by what Jesus did. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Okay, let's take a look at it in context. Three rules uh, for biblical interpretation. The primary ones are context, context, and context. What's the context of this? Well, it's talking about the resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, well, there's no resurrection of the dead? That's the context. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, of all people, should be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by the many death came, uh, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't say salvation, it just says the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, uh, yeah, when you read this in context, it's not saying, what's basically saying is that everybody's going to be resurrected as a result of what Christ has done. But um, only those who trust in him will truly have life. They're raised for life. And those who end up in the lake of fire, book of Revelation clearly describes that as the second death. If you have a computerized Bible, look for the phrase second death and look how the scriptures des describe it. So yes, everybody will be made alive as a result of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And that's what the context of this passage is. Not sure where he's going to go because keep in mind, he's basically besmirched the, uh, the creeds here and he's kind of winging it on his own. This is truly a patchwork quilt of his own making. This is a theology that he's created all by him, his lonesome. Just him and his Bible. And uh, looks like he's really biffed it badly. Does it get plainer than that? Now I know somebody said to me, yeah, but that means everybody in Adam dies and everybody who's in Christ is made alive. Well, who's in Christ? Well, now that comes back to the fundamental question, for whom did Christ die? Now, if... if, if the whole world, the, the scriptures say, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even Second Peter um, let me find the passage real quick here. Um, it makes it clear that even apostates, Christ died for them. Second Peter, let's see, uh, I think it's chapter 2. 
Yeah, it's Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will seek, secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So even Peter makes it clear that Jesus died for people who deny him. Jesus died for them. The problem isn't with Jesus' atonement. It's that they want to persist in sin and unbelief. And that's exactly what they do. Because the thing we bring to the salvation equation is our sin. And that's why the that's why Paul, when he preaches in, in to the synagogue in Acts 13, warns them, don't be like the people who the prophets prophesied against. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. Okay? He says, repent, believe, believe. And then when they some of them didn't believe, he said, you count yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Unless you're a Calvinist, you would say, well, Christ died for everybody. Christ died for everybody. Well, the Bible says if he died for all, then all died. So if all died with Christ, if he died for all, then all died. That's what the Bible says. And if all died with Christ, then all were buried with Christ. And if all were buried with Christ, then all were raised with Christ. As an yeah, again, uh, no, we're buried with Christ in our baptisms. Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now come back to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. He says this true knowledge in verse 10 is this. It's a renewal. It'll lead to a renewal. So you stop believing an old thing you have believed, and there's a renewal in your mind, and you start believing something new, something different. And that is that there's no distinction between people. In the church. He's talking to the church. There's no distinction. But Christ is all and in all. Look at the last three Verses of chapter, of verse 11, Colossians 3, last three words in chapter 11, and uh, verse 11, Colossians 3, 11, and in all. What are you going to do with that? And I know I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself. I'm bearing down hard on this, but I'm doing it because I know how hard it is for some of you to, to believe the gospel is this good. What are you going to do with that? He's in all. All what? Greeks, Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. Christ is in all. Yeah, he's talking to the church. He's all in all. Those who have been baptized into Christ's death through their baptism, that's who he's talking to. Does that mean everybody's a Christian? Nope. A Christian is a Christ follower. A Christian is a Christ follower. Somebody who has abandoned his own agenda and his own life and by faith has believed on Jesus and following him. The, the, the factual reality is it is what it is for everybody because of what Jesus did. The actual experience varies between believers and unbelievers. The actual experience of it will vary between believers. So it's just a matter of experience. Okay. We're all in Christ. It's just a matter of different experiences. Oh, boy. Believers and unbelievers. But the factual reality of it is real for all of us. Why in the world does that anger the religious person? Why would, you, why would that frustrate you? Why would that anger you? I haven't said everybody's going to heaven, have I? I haven't said that people don't need to believe on Jesus, have I? Yeah, well, what's your point then? Yeah, 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 because you sure are teaching a convoluted thing here. Have I, have, I, have I said anything that's going to send somebody to hell if I tell them this message and they believe it? Maybe. 
won't they then enter into the experience, the salvation experience to use evangelical terminology? What, uh, the salvation experience. What is that? They enter in and experience it. Or if they don't believe it, are they worse off than they were before? They were unbelievers before. They're unbelievers now. What are you scared of? What are you afraid of? You, you, yeah, that smells like wolf to me. Yeah. Just believe what the Bible says. Yeah, I'm not convinced you're rightly handling it, like at all. Just believe what it says. Yeah, I do. It's just like I said, every time I compare what it says to what you're saying, there's there's like discrepancies, big ones. There's a true knowledge and a false knowledge. A false knowledge is, a no, is, a, is an idea of separation of God from his creation. A true knowledge is the realization that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and there is no separation now. When Jesus said it is finished, he ascended back to the Father and sat down by the right hand of God, because not because he was tired. He sat down. That's something no high priest ever did, because the high priest in the Old Testament was never finished. But Jesus said it's finished. He went home and sat down. Yeah, that's because when we say he sits at the right hand of God the Father, he's ruling and reigning. This is what the church has taught from the beginning. Because there's nothing left to do. It's all been done. There's nothing left to do. Jesus is not up there cracking open a cold one and you know, put, propping his feet up and basically saying, well, there's nothing to do. I'm just going to sit here for a while. He's ruling and reigning. Good night. <sighs> That's what it means. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling and reigning. Again, this guy has cobbled together his own theology. This is just silly. We don't have to tell anybody to do anything. It's true. It's not faith that makes it true. It's faith that makes it personal. You know what I'm saying? It, it, faith will make it real to you. You'll experience it. Yeah, it'll just make it real to you. Okay. Through faith. But you didn't make it real by faith. Verse 12, let's move on. I've, I've, I've said enough about that. If if, if the Holy, if I've said enough that if the Holy Spirit's going to say it to you today through this teaching, you heard it. And if not, I don't have enough words. Yeah. Um, um, Dr. Um, McVeigh, uh, with all due um, respect, I'm kind of done with this because um, I'm convinced you don't know what you're doing. I'm convinced you're not teaching what the church has taught from the beginning, and I'm convinced you're not rightly handling God's word and that you're teaching a different gospel and uh, and it really is, this is a religion of your own cobbling together. You would be good to go back and do a study on church history and what the church has taught from the beginning and, uh, and, and maybe adopt a creed or three or, you know, or more um, to help clear up all of the mess that is your theology because this is truly just one convoluted mess. And it... The, it it might be it might make sense to you but what you're preaching doesn't even make sense well it doesn't make sense to me at all and i review sermons from all kinds of different folks on a daily basis here at fighting for the faith the one thing i'm not hearing the biblical gospel clearly taught clearly proclaimed and uh, in basically in accord with uh, what we find in the apostles creed the nicene creed and the athanasian creed just want to point that out. All right, so we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. 
Or he has to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.